morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be. Welcome to another edition. And yes, we're live tonight um, on the other side of midnight, where, as I've said now relentlessly for five, six years, maybe seven, almost anything can happen and does. Now, let me give you a quick preview. Last night was part one of tonight, which is part two of our ongoing I know this sounds like science fiction, E.T. Communications Experiment, featuring our um, uh, heroine of the hour, Maria Wheatley, archaeologist Maria Wheatley, dowser Maria Wheatley, uh, pioneer, uh, intrepid pioneer, because she braved all kinds of elements to carry out a most remarkable experiment. And if you have not heard last night's show, You need to join Club 19.5 and uh, listen as soon as possible because this is phase two of an ongoing ET communications effort by means of VHF radio frequencies in the 144 to 432 megahertz range that is getting all kinds of extraordinary responses which appear to be in code appear to be codes consisting of multiple constants, hyperdimensional numbers, geometry, and multiple frequencies, which can be decoded in terms of fundamental mathematical ratios, etc., etc., sacred geometry, etc., etc., etc. Well, that was last night. We kind of gave you an overview of the last couple of months. We've been doing this since December 4th when we sent our first high-powered radio message to Oumuamua, the first interstellar visitor in modern times, which is zipping out of the solar system at escape velocity and something like uh, two and a half billion miles out there in the dark, leaving forever, uh, never to return. And that's going to be another whole show because there's some potential new significant developments uh, uh, based around the Oumuamua idea and concept and visitation. But what we decided to do after the remarkable positive results from that communications effort, which also involved sending messages for a period of one evening to the moon, and what we got back from that effort was a series of numbers that pointed us directly at Stonehenge. So we looked around and we said, let's see, who could we get to go to... (coughs) I'm just kidding. Obviously, there was only one person on the planet that we could pick on, and that was Maria. And she volunteered as soon as we said Stonehenge, and the rest, as they say, is history. So last Friday... For those of you who've been, you know, living off planet for the last week, um, we uh, had her go to the center of Stonehenge and broadcast a pre-recorded three-minute, three-minute-plus, 3.30 seconds, that's something like that, <clears throat> set of signals in the middle of Stonehenge to see if we got any responses. And last night was occupied with relaying the results of responses not only on her recorder there in Stonehenge, but from Michael Hill, who was located near Crystal Springs, Florida, from my system here, located about 60 miles from Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, 
uh, David Saria, who is in the uh, eastern part of British Columbia, north of Idaho. And um, we, we, we're, we're trying to be adding to this network as the weeks proceed and as our experiments deepen and become more mature. So tonight, what we are going to do is continue with the analysis of what uh, we were discussing last night, which is the decodings and analysis, both in terms of audio and signal processing and spectral displays and every way that you can process a waveform uh, known to a Western, not every way. Um, last night, Thomas introduced us to the idea that we could put these signals through a Morse code translation program, which he found online, and lo and behold, it began spitting out a lot of recognizable letters, particularly numbers and letters that focused around E and 5, with some S's and a couple of H's and an A and an I thrown in, and then David uh, Sarita, who is our um, forensic expert in uh, ancient Semitic languages, said, oh my gosh, that's, that's out of the Gnostic Gospels. <clears throat> and of course, the cat was among the pigeons because uh, he and Thomas spent the day talking about possibilities, and uh, we'll get into that. The most extraordinary new news was that last night, John's analysis wasn't quite ready. Jonathan uh, Womack's analysis wasn't quite ready. And you can go and read the bios of all these people. Uh, for those of you who've been following this work for months, you know who they are. For those of you who don't, I'm not going to waste valuable airtime introducing them, uh, except to say just go to the other side of midnight to the guest page, and their bios are all there. And they have very diverse and remarkably convergent bios because everybody has a role and it's very organic the way this team has kind of come together and how the analysis is falling out of what we're doing separately as we made a big point last night initially we each were looking at this separately um and we were focused on our own analyses then we began to compare notes last night we'll continue that tonight but the most amazing news and of course, it's going to keep everybody, including me, on the edge of my creaky uh, rocking chair here. Um, Jonathan tonight reported in analyzing some of my recordings that he has found for the first time in anybody's reports, including David's, you know, months and months old uh, working with this technology. He has found for the first time a human voice human speech and it appears to repeat if i can remember what he just told me the same thing again and again and again so he's off now preparing a file so we can actually play this on the air and then we'll do some more technical analyses like looking at waveforms comparisons and all that and um it's it's going to be really really intriguing to see if we identify who we're hearing or the relevance and context of whatever message that he has heard in plain language. Because up until tonight, up until right now, the only coherent information we have decoded has been in the form of frequencies, units of measure, geometry, things like that. 
if we actually have a voice and we're not eavesdropping on some, you know, military transmission or some, you know, commercial television station or whatever, then this represents a new uh, level of the uh, experiment. And what I'm going to do, uh, I was going to try to do it during the show to see if even talking about this triggers some kind of response. But since I can't be in two places at once and I don't want to produce a several gig file, since I can't get upstairs to the other computer to, you know, start and stop it appropriately, I will do that off the air after the show tonight, uh, several days after Maria's experiments. You know, it's what? Uh, it's seven days plus, it's nine days now since she was in the middle of Stonehenge. So we should be eavesdropping on either background traffic, some kind of intergalactic Dirac transmitter system. And you can look up Dirac. That's going to be fun for you. Google is your friend. Uh, we might talk about that tonight as well, because we've got uh, one of our prime generals with us, Ron uh, Gerbron, who knows a bit about almost everything we're trying to crack. He has his own opinions, of course, but he is a font of data and so we dip into his memory files many times, which is why he is on these shows, because you never know when something that we have discovered will spark something that he has encountered, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. And then we are, uh, as my grandmother used to say, off to the races. So without further ado, let me introduce David, David Sarita, um, Thomas um, uh, Mathers, uh, Maria Wheatley is with us. Um, uh, Jonathan Womack, as I said a few moments ago. Uh, Keith Morgan, of course, is standing by uh, in, in case we get into technical wilderness and we need some technical assistance. And then I believe Dennis Stone is with us. Dennis is the um, owner and manager and director of the uh, site in New Hampshire called America Stonehenge which from various radiocarbon dating appears to be, you know, almost 10,000 years old and is contemporary with ancient sites in the, uh, on the European continent, in, including uh, the earliest phases of, of uh, Stonehenge and Woodhenge and, and surrounding uh, uh, sites there in Britain. And so what we're going to try to do, given that we ended our program last night by kind of forecasting that um, uh, Marie is going to be going back into Stonehenge a week from tonight, actually a week from this afternoon, on the 20th of February in the afternoon. She's going to be doing another experimental run. We're praying to the weather gods that it's uh, not sleeting and raining and freezing like it was uh, last Friday. And um, she will do a much more extensive protocol um, which will be worked out this week. And then all of these separate stations will try to record during her time there and her transmissions uh, signals separated by literally thousands and thousands of miles on these two frequencies. We may add a third frequency, which came out of our discussion last night. Uh, we will make that decision probably later in the week. But we have a fertile arena to talk about tonight. Um, I'm just wondering, because I'd like to uh, 
I'd, I'd like to go back to open the show tonight to David Sarita because we ended on his frequency comparisons, which are a window into basic mathematical constants and codes and metrology. And then, as you know, uh, part of what we came across last night serendipitously through Thomas's use of the online uh, Morse code uh, algorithm is we appear to have a series of letters and numbers which are out of uh, the uh, Gnostic Gospels. And so, David, why don't we begin there and give people a little background on Semitic languages and why we, we probably aren't talking to ancient, ancient Hebrews. We might be talking to a library computer. We might be talking to uh, someone or something which is talking to us in a language which is kind of rooted in the ancient history we're trying to uncover, or it could be none of the above. So why don't you begin with the uh, background in, uh, in Semitic languages in the Middle East? I'll probably start with the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic, and it's, you know, when, when Christians read the Lord's Prayer today, it's nothing like the way Jesus spoken himself and in english it's O thou from whom the breath of life comes who fills all realms with sound light and vibration may you touch me in my utmost holiest so jesus is addressing the breath which and the, and the breath gives um vibration to word which is you know language and word in in greek is actually logos which Logos is one of the most mysterious words in the ancient Greek language because logos doesn't just mean word. It's actually word as vibration that causes action. And it has to be established in a mathematical ratio that produces a harmony. So words in the ancient world are not just um, fictitious assignments to say that's an apple and that's an orange and this means go run and get the apple. It's not like that. They gave a very meaningful sound intonation and vibrations to words. And and this happened to me very recently. And this is so shocking to me as a researcher because one of the numbers that I got on the radios from the transmission starting from, you know, just before Christmas to Oumuamua was this number that corresponded to the the height of the Washington Monument in inches, which was, you know, 6,666 point um, something inches converted to 555 point uh, whatever it is um, in residue. I don't have the notes in front of me. So my voice, I intoned in front of my frequency meter, the same meter I used to capture frequencies coming in on the radio. I, I intoned the sound A, and uh, I, and all of a sudden, I saw the same number, exactly to two decimals of accuracy. And I said, how is my voice putting out this number that actually equates to the height of the Washington Monument in inches perfectly to two decimals? And I said, it probably has to do with the fact that I have been exercising my voice, doing these ancient 
these ancient vowel tonings that exist in this manuscript that was discovered in Nag Hammadi, Egypt in 1945, is it, it's it's labeled the Gospel of the Egyptians, but it's not an Egyptian manuscript. It, its true name is the Gospel of the Great Invisible Spirit. And in this manuscript, we see the beginning of toning seven vowels 22 times, and 22 divided by seven is pi, which is the, which is the resolution of a circle, and that a circle, as a circular waveguide wavelength, is is this is not only symbolic, but it's actually how a vibrational sound emerges. Because what is the shape of the larynx, right? And the throat is a circular tube. And if I blow air through the top of a Coke bottle, which is a circular opening, I'll create this vibrational sound. So circle. And sound and vibration and logos are very deeply connected. So what I'm saying is why was my voice, and I did this repeatedly, not just once, when I intone the vowel A with my voice, I'm getting the same number that came in my radios from the Amuamua transmission that equated to the mathematics of the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument corresponds to the Great Pyramid of Egypt perfectly because if you make two circles – whose diameter is the exact height of the monument, the Vesca Pisces that forms in between them is the exact finished height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, which is 480.69 feet. So why is that? So again... And David, if you look down from a satellite at Washington, D.C., as the early corona uh, spy satellite images did, you see the Vesca Pisces laid out with the Washington Monument standing up as a stall spire right in the middle of this incredibly important geometric construct. Exactly. So whoever put the Vesca Pisces in the lawn feature of the Washington Monument knew exactly exactly the the mathematics that, that I discovered that connects the monument to the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And of course, the monument is an Egyptian obelisk, which is a monopole type antenna. Now, I've taken my radio frequency meter, a TF2 trifield.com meter, and I put it on inanimate, long, like for example, my stove pipe in my house is about 22 feet long. It's tubular and it's an antenna, but it has no power in it. But if I hold my meter up to it, I should do a video of this. There's radio waves coming off my my stovepipe. Why? Because it's a conductor. It's erect as a monopole, as in the Washington Monument. No, it's not plugged into a power source, but there is a power source, which is called the Schumann Resonance. David, let me ask a really, really dumb question, and it's not, Mm -hmm. you'll see it's not ultimately dumb. With the radio we're using, the Baofeng radio, or with any radio, Mm -hmm. how are the radio waves passing the antenna received by the circuitry in the radio? Are they coming from the side or do they come from the end? Well, if you take the antenna off, you'll get no activity in the radio. So the antenna's height is proportional. No, 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 no. I'm talking about simple geometry. Because most of the time you guys have been using the radio with it sitting vertically with the antenna pointed toward the zenith of the sky. I actually tilt mine. I tilt mine at all different angles. I have been rotating mine horizontal Mm -hmm. and then moving it in azimuth, north, south, east, west, that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. I get certain azimuths within an extraordinarily fine precision, like 
you know, half a degree or less where the signal will come in and on both sides it'll be quiet or one side will be quiet and the other side will be just constant noise, just just white noise. So the it works best at 432 in this horizontal mode with the antenna pointed out like 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 a you know a schoolroom pointer but most of the time i've seen your videos with the antenna pointed straight up and that's how it's used in the field you know as as a as a walkie talkie or as a ham radio people hold it next to their mouth with the antenna more or less pointed up that's an incredible observation because you're right. I've tested it at angles and sometimes it's incredibly active at an angle and then when I straighten it out, it stops. Now, if we're dealing with real radio waves, radio to radio, station to station, it shouldn't care what the angle is. Really? No, it should not care at all. So, well, wait, that- what, what, what if we're dealing with polarized, meaning it's, it's geometrically aligned signals? And if you have a polarized signal, either light or radio waves, if the antenna or the detector is at the wrong angle, it won't see or hear anything. It has to be aligned with the polarization angle of the signal it's trying to receive. And so that, to, would only, that could only mean the signal's coming from space because it that's what I'm. Not, that's what I, where I'm yeah. trying to get to. Yeah, that's, that's why that, it was not a dumb question because no, I'm thinking oh, would, this yeah. damn stuff is coming. Well, it's two places either from space or the center of the earth. <clears throat> I don't think it's from the center of the earth, okay? And remember, we're, we're not able to detect um, with a meter sensitive to eight gigahertz any activity on the meter when it's chirping. So we, we can't see, whereas if I push the call button at 432 or 144.1, my meter goes to maximum. So that means that the incoming should do the same thing if it's coming in on one of those frequencies. And it's not because I don't see my meter showing any activity at all. So that means it's coming in. If it's coming in from space, one, it could be incredibly weak. And two, it could be coming in at a frequency that's beyond the scope of my meter but the antenna see the way antenna works is it's 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 as a monopole your wavelength is four times the height of the antenna but that doesn't mean it will only pick up that frequency it, it will pick up octaves of that frequency mm-hmm. and an octave is divided by with, two with lesser and lesser efficiency with lesser and lesser efficiency but it's most optimal at the at, at the, the resonant frequency your, four times its Right. physical uh, length. That's why in the old days you'd be driving along, you know, like I remember living in the Central Valley of California, and these massive radio towers were so tall because the, the wavelength was four times the height of that super tall antenna. And as antennas got shorter and shorter and shorter, the, the wavelength got smaller and the frequency got higher. Just like when mm-hmm. we had our first cell phones, remember, you'd be in a yeah, I didn't want to get us diverted from language into this, but to me, the geometry, the this geometry of what we're receiving is as important as the, the uh, content. Because language comes the earliest semitic languages come from here i'll give you an incredible example like let's just take the tetragrammaton which in in the hebrew language is ywhw and you can't 
make any sound without vowels. And so the, the, the Hebrew name of God, which transliterates as I am that which came into being or I am that I am, the ancient Egyptians had a tetragrammaton of four letters that means the same thing. And this is documented in Peter Lamazuri's book, The Great Pyramid Decoded. And it, it's Hufwa or Huf, it's, it's Hufwa. So it, it means the same thing. It means I am that I am, but instead of, instead, it's actually Kufa, which became Hufwa, which became Yawwa. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now, if I go to the Hopi language for the, the, the Hopi name for God, it's Tawwa. But if I take away the T, it's Awwa, Yawwa. You see, it's the same, it's the same name, but, but that particular culture uses this sharp, the sharp sound as a T goes all the way into Mexico. For example, Tenochtitlan, which is Mexico City, if I take away the sharp T, I get Enoch land, which is the first biblical prophet. <laughs> and, and why that interests me is there I am in Chaco Canyon. And Chaco Canyon was probably built with the same mathematics and measurements that came out of the Mayan and possibly later Aztec civilizations, because we see similar architecture. But these Kiva circles, I go in there with a Leica laser, this was only three and a half years ago, and I'm measuring a perfect Hebrew holy of holy circle using the Hebrew long cubit of 20.4 inches per cubit, 20.4 something inches per cubit, I get I get a 34 foot circle diameter Right, and it's perfect on a Leica laser. It's 34 feet. Now that's impossible because that's a Hebrew measurement. So what is the Hebrew measurement doing in Chaco Canyon, New Mexico? And I, I told the park ranger. I said, Well, remember, like- remember, Dr. Barry Fell, who was the genius at Harvard. I think his especially was marine biology, but he really should have been an archaeologist because he wrote a book called I think America B.C., where he documented ancient Egyptian voyages up the Mississippi and into the far west. So those Egyptians would have had knowledge of a Hebrew long cubit. And did they give it to the Native Americans or immigrants from Mexico, Mayan descendants, et cetera, et cetera, finding the route. But we know from Barry Fell's pioneering work, and there's been a lot of substantiation subsequent, that the Americas were not isolated in the old, old time periods. You know, the gyres of the oceans are like galactic superhighways. And they, you know, Thor Heyerdahl proved you could literally float between Africa and Central America on a uh, uh, South Atlantic current. Exactly. And when wind would hit a something like a circular kiva, it would make a whistling, humming Sound. It would resonate a, like blowing over resonate. a Coke bottle. Right. So a vowel sound is produced. And then when you when you compare your different languages and you look at their root structure and you take away your, your consonant, your sharp sounds, and your syllables, and you look at your vowel central sounds, you'll see that what is the definition of of the of the ancient you know how the the, the Great Pyramid of Egypt was that it was was Khufu's, which became which was originally Kufa, and Kufa was was 
really Yahweh. It was really the same. It meant I am that I am. That's what it meant to the Egyptians too. It meant the same thing to the Egyptians as it meant to the Hebrews. And this is well documented in Peter Lemizuri's book, The Great Pyramid Decoded. So when you see how transliteration and transmigration of word occurs and you see the birth of the Jewish religion, you actually see it being born out of these ancient Syriac and and all these different cultures that are coming into play because this this connection to this God source energy starts to appear. And then that when the sharp sounds enter the language, it changes. Now remember the Tower of Babel incident is, is very symbolic it in the sense that when the tower was okay, destroyed, David, we're, we are, we're coming up on the bottom of the hour, so let's okay. kind of pause here. Yeah, let's pause here. My guests this morning are too numerous to mention, and we're talking about communication. We are in touch with someone, and the closest analog we currently have is this. is called Gates Ag-1, and it's highly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates. The mission statement is all about how we must accelerate the deployment of new technologies to indigenous farmers, and it's going to help them with climate change, right? It all, again, it all ties back to that. And we must go in and take their heirloom genetics away from them, right? These, these precious, uh, hardy, resilient seeds that have fed those people in various parts of the world for generations, for, for hundreds of generations in some cases, and replace them instead with newly genetically engineered, CRISPR modified, bastardized. That's why I say they're defiling the food supply. Ag tech, as it's called. And so this is why we now need to introduce the idea of a acute food crisis. And I would suggest that they have engineered and we're staring right now down the barrel of, this is the, the urgency in tonight's conversation, uh, of an engineered food shortage. And they will use this food shortage, which you're starting to see now around the world, especially as the big bread baskets have started to experience crop failures and they're shutting down their exports of grains, corn and soybean prices are rising precipitously. That means that the countries that depend on those exports, the net importers, are all already experiencing food crises. And so this is spreading around the world right now. And what will happen as we, you know, as we get through this is 
you'll see the media and these think tanks and the UN, all these all these players will point at the problem. It's just the Hegelian dialectic again, right? They'll say, now you see, because of climate change, mm -hmm. this is why we're having these food shortages and of course the pandemic. And this is why, this is why we have to move into indoor vertical farms and lab-grown meat. And this, you, there's no option. Now, now you feel the pain and now you see why we've been doing this. We've had your interests at heart the whole time. We're from the government. We're here to help. <laughs> right? So there, there's an acute crisis situation that we're now walking into. And that will be used to bring all of this nasty technology in. This is Christian Westbrook with the Ice Age Farmer, and you're listening to the other side of the news. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. To be clearly separated from the other side of the news, which is hosted by Kinthea and is, uh, shall we say, politically divergent from what you hear over this air. But I'm a firm believer in the First Amendment, even when people are wrong. Back to tonight's subject. Uh, we're trying to crack the code of who we're talking to and have been talking to in this very bifurcated way of stilted geometry and coding and frequencies and all that and trying to figure out through the labyrinth of transliteration of numbers and constants and geometry what it is that they're trying to tell us where they're trying to point our attention and the more fundamental question is who the heck are they who have we opened hailing frequencies to Okay, David, um, please please continue. Okay, so this is quite remarkable because we're talking about Stonehenge where Maria Wheatley transmitted and the first number that comes in on her radio um, is actually the circumference of the Avebury Holes, the 56 Avebury Holes. And I got that same number on my radio in British Columbia two hours before she transmitted. Exactly. <laughs> now, watch this. This is quite remarkable. If you go to the Bible, Exodus 3.14, notice that 3.14 is pi, which is... You take the circumference, which is the first number we got on Maria's radio and Maya radio, divided by pi, and you get uh, the totally acceptable diameter, according to Britannica, of the Avebury holes. So just look at that. But notice that in Exodus 3.14 is the first time we see the tetragrammaton, the Hebrew name of God, which, which existentially means the supreme I am that I am. It, it, there is no man sitting in the sky in a throne. It just means the infinite I am presence. So that means that that word... Well, hang on, hang on, because that really can be translated or transliterated as existence. Exactly. To be differentiated and, between non-existence, nothing, and something. 
and it, there's a pulse to it, right? So notice that it's Exodus 3.14, which is coded as pi. Now, what gets more amazing, again, in the in the Egyptian, in Peter um, Lemissuri's research, the HWFW, notice there's two Ws, just like the YWHW in the Hebrew, actually means the same thing. It means the supreme I am. And then it later transliterates to kufa, K-U-F-U, which becomes Khufu. And then they go, oh, it's Khufu's pyramid. <laughs> he was the king, you see. But it's really Kaffa, which was Yawa, which was which was Hafwa, which all meant this kind of pulse I am. Now, I speculate, because I've heard the NASA sound. It's almost like our- you're saying it's the physics. It, it's the sound of our sun, because... When our when the Hopi named the sun god Tawa, and again the T is Mesoamerican, it's all over the Aztec Empire. We remove the T, we have the same phonetic, Awa, with <laughs> the same thing. And when you listen to the sound of the sun, the pure sound, it's like yo wa 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 wa. That's speeded up. Now when I when the real sound of the sun. When NASA recorded it, it was too s- slow for the human ear, so they had to speed it up. But it, which is essentially the same thing as what we're doing with these radio chirps: is we're slowing them down from their speeded up state, and we're, we're we're getting the same data, but at a slower rate. So I'm saying that the real phonetic awa, iwa, is is really the early early priests and priestesses were in such deep meditation they were hearing the sound and the pulse of our own star our own sun and then when you go into for example the uh, the african zuni name for the creator is Awanawelona, and again i take away my syllables and i got wah 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 basically <laughs> which is like you know my husky out there howling in the wind so the the, the question is is we start to egoify our interpretation of phonetic and then we when we put our sharp sounds around the basic pulse we we think we're praying or we're relating to a different source when really it's actually the same thing so when we look at what thomas mathers brought in in the you know in the text from the um the uh, Morse code translator, I started looking at it and I looked, I go back to my gospel of the Egyptians and I see the way the prayers actually were intoned at the time of Jesus. And I'm seeing some of the same structure. And there's so much similar structure, even when you can actually see this and you go to the other side of midnight and you go to Thomas's items and you're going to go to item his item number eight and Thomas's item number eight Morse code if you click on it you'll see literally seven you'll see Eve E E is he she it's kind of sounds like yeshiva yeshiva and it, and that's that's the early structure of Yeshua, which became the name of Jesus. 
that's the early structure of it. Because again, when you study the history of even his name, it's definitely not Jesus because there is no J sound in in the ancient Hebrew and the ancient um, Aramaic. That's a Latin sound. The J is Latin. So when when the Latin the Romans the Romans were Latin speaking heard his name they couldn't pronounce it just like if i go because i've been to saudi arabia and i've sat there and listened to the arabs speak i don't know how to do what they know how to do with my <laughs> voice so i'll just put a j in there when okay okay there. well one thing confuses me did you say thomas's item seven or eight 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 okay now let so me tell is, people new people because we're getting new people all the time how to get there go to the other side of midnight.com click on tonight's banner for sunday Super Bowl Sunday, February 13th. The uh, Rams won, by the way. I should have said that at the top of the show. Um, that will take you to the guest page. Under the banner on the guest page at the top, you'll see uh, line items, links to various guests. Click on Thomas. That will take you to his section of Radio with Pictures. Scroll down to number seven. I'm sorry, number eight. And you'll see what you said last night was a um, ancient text we know as the Gnostic Gospels. So yeah, right in the beginning you'll see the message is five Sahasava, Sahasava. And then it, it shows um, again, Eve. You can see Eve is actually a real ancient Hebrew word. It, it is it is ancient Aramaic and Hebrew because Eve and Adam, the Adama, are actually ancient um are, are, are true ancient language. So they're they're not made up in, in the modern sense of the reinterpretation of ancient scripture. So we see, even in the very end, the last um, part, you, you see, sus, she, he, shehe. So when I when I see IE, I, I'm looking online, the third line from the bottom, I see IE, IE, I mean, that, that is ancient Aramaic right there. That That is very clear stuff that you'll see in the Gospel of the Egyptians because you'll, you'll see these prayers that are in the Gospel of the Egyptians. And, and I'll just kind of read one here. Ai, Aisus, Aio, Aoa. You see, that, notice how those are all kind of vowels and there's very little um, syllable and, and, and consonant sounds in that. Mm-hmm. And, and it means really, truly, oh, Jesus, Mazarius, Yazadekis. You say, Jesus is actually Jesus with a Y. There's no J. Oh, Jesus, Mazarius. And then, oh, living water, oh, child of the child, oh, glorious name, truly, truly, Aeo on. Okay, so now I see the Aea here in, in with, again, notice the way Morse code is going to work. So Morse code is going to hear it's going to hear a phonetic and and the morse code will correspond to a a phonetic sound and convert it to a letter that corresponds to that sound right so what you're seeing here and what thomas has in this decoder we don't know where these words get separated Right, we don't know where they get separated, but if I go to the Gospel of the Egyptians, I see I E A O, which is I E A and A I O, and if I go to Thomas's, and and that actually may be an early interpretation 
of actually a prayer to to the Creator or God or whatever you want to call it. But I see that in here. I see Iaia. I see this is line three from the bottom. So one, two, three, four, five, six from the top. I see E I E A E I, and and that's the same phonetic. But when you're looking at what Thomas has here, there's no. We don't know where these separate. So what I what I suggest, and what Thomas and I were talking about earlier today, is we really need somebody who is an expert in these ancient Semitic languages to look at this. And this is actually from your radio, Richard. Thomas mm-hmm. told me this. So this item number eight is not Michael E. Hill's radio. It's yours. Okay. Where is the pure ease that he got in item seven? which really interests me, by the way, even as pure ease, because there are whole intonements in the Gospel of the Egyptians where they'll just intone E, just pure ease. And and those E's can be E's or eh sounds, because, again, they have seven vowels and we only have five. We have A, E, I, O, U, and they have A, A, E, E, I, O, U. So... So they have seven, but therefore there there are a lot of real words in here that 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 correspond to what could be ancient Aramaic. And again, it's okay, really okay. So so again, he said categorically last night, and he's he's kind of monitoring. He's got something else he's got to do before he. No, can I'm, come I'm on. here. No, I'm here. I wanted to actually just kind of jump in for for a quick second. Yeah, please, because of... you said last night this wasn't Morse, but if we're getting coherent language, it's got to be Morse, doesn't it? <clears throat> well, I mean, the the interesting thing about Morse is that it's based off of a base two number system. Um, what we what David and I discussed this afternoon was, um, and last night, I mean, maybe it wasn't clear when I was mentioning this, but you know, we've got da- we've got some data loss, so it's not like every single um, series of chirps are are necessarily correlating to a specific letter. So it's not writing a novel for us. Now the thing is, is that I do agree with Richard that it is really interesting that you know once we once I was able to sort of uh, focus in the sensitivity of the Morse decoder because the the uh, the one that was just had the E's and the different sort of you know like e e e e e e e e e e that was that was using the basic form of the online online tool which is an open source tool um, for for listeners at home you can go onto the website and you can see where this was this was done um, that being said. You know what David is is mentioning in terms of us not really being able to understand where like the kind of line breaks are, where the spacings are. Um, you know, something that I I was thinking about this afternoon after I spoke with David was maybe to slightly slow down um, the the frequency because this is the untouched frequency. So this is your twelve fifty nine. So this is this this processed uh, file was from. Uh, the moment that Maria was actually transmitting, had transmitted, and was currently in in Stonehenge, so that was the file that I was concentrating on on processing. So I think maybe what's happening is that at certain points when it starts accelerating and you're getting a lot of faster kind of clicks, um, it doesn't seem to be to be uh, breaking it up. But um, you know what David and I discussed this afternoon was. 
like again, if you take a look at what kind of information we're extrapolating from um, from the from the transmissions, it's sort of growing, and then we're kind of taking information from a previous analysis, we're incorporating some of that, and then we're retransmitting out, and then we're getting stuff back. So I think what we're going to try to do for the for the next uh, transmission is to, in a very rudimentary way, because I mean, again, that's why David was mentioning that it would be interesting if there's any listeners out there um, that are quite schooled um, uh, and scholarly in the in, in linguistics and etymology um, you know that would definitely be be helpful however um, for the purpose of us being able to get something going for the transmission next week um, I think what we're going to try to do is um, basically the same way that in the signal, um, that we put together that was broadcast uh, on the last uh, transmission, we incorporated sort of parameters, things like, okay, uh, frequency sweep and, and you know, locations based off of certain specific frequencies. We're encoding using the tonal frequencies of a sine wave, like the most basic, the most basic sort of oscillated form of, of, of noise. So what we want to do now is be able to sort of, again, establish some kind of parameters. Now, we are seeing, I think it's very strange as well that if this was just completely random, Okay, then you would have perhaps other letters coming into it. But if you take a look at it, the it's it's a quite sort of narrow range of letters that are coming through, and it does seem to sort of be leaning towards some t- you know as as David was mentioning, you know potentially some form of Aramaic or, or something like that. So what we would like to do is transmit out um, sort of, again, parameters of a linguistics platform. So, and and relate it back to Morse. I think, you know, Morse is kind of, is kind of um, a, a useful way right now for us to be able to encode in a base two number system uh, type of way things that we can derive uh, letters from. So what we're thinking of doing is going through the... The, the alphabet or certain syllables and basically correlating that to a specific Morse code. So if it's like a I, you know, that we do the Morse code equivalent to that. And we run through sort of a little bit of an alf- alphabet, at least to kind of give an indication to that, okay, so we're seeing that you're coming that there seems to be this language base or parts of this language base even though what we're perceiving are generations and generations and generations off of what the architect's original language, you know, potentially could have could have been. Um, you know, whether it's more related to Sumerian or whether it's related to Hebrew, whether it's related to whatever it is, there's going to be sort of, I think, connections that stretch all the way back to, in my belief, what I, you know, where I think this uh, network that we're tapping into um you know, basically was related back to. So that's going to be the focus for this week is to incorporate some type of an element. And, and Richard, we talked about this a couple of days ago, that now that we're starting to take a look at the uh, the transmission data and analyzing more of a rhythmic structure, and now that we're actually kind of, you know, um, extrapolating some, you know, and extracting some type of information, 
um, based around a, 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 a number, uh, um, uh, sort of a base two number system, you know, through Morse code. You know, this could be a kind of a useful sort of way for us to try to get some semblance of, of, of intelligence of it, because I think we're sitting. We're well, wait, wait, right you now. keep saying base two. It's just binary on or off. Well, exactly. But the thing is, is that the what the the rhythmic structure, um, if you take a look at the sound waves, it's it's basically an it's an on off type of sound it's not like we're not seeing three different amplitudes or four different amplitudes the chirps are kind of coming in the chirps are a little bit different um they seem to be a little bit this this transmission differed a little bit from the transmissions that we got back in december in the sense that it seemed to be really more kind of on the flow and sort of conversational feeling of the rhythmic structure of the chirps whereas the last one the chirps themselves were kind of intriguing when you really analyze the the audio because they seem to differ quite a bit these ones they differ it's not like each one is identical Hmm. but what was much more interesting with this was was the rhythmic structure and we didn't encode anything um, based off of any type of, you know, binary uh, number system or some type of, of rhythmic structure. So it's just, you know, as we do a test and we analyze it and we go back, we're sort of, in, you know, incorporating different elements. And I think this is a really important sort of element to be able to to get in for the the, the subsequent transmission. Okay. And what, what David and I had said was that what we would do is establish, okay, let's pick a language, okay, um, you know, um, Sumerian. And and then let's go through and actually play out the sound that it actually makes and relate that back to a Morse code. Wait, wait, wait. Do we actually have phonetic translations of Sumerian? Well, I think it's whether it's Sumerian, whether it's, you know, Aramaic. I mean, we, we, we have, again, this is just a very preliminary conversation. That I mean, it's different not- between seeing a written language and hearing it spoken by a human voice. I know, but what we can do is that we can we can through the Morse code be able to sort of demonstrate a phonetic way ah, okay, of utilizing okay. the. All right, look, the, we we've got about English seven minutes to the top of the hour. I want to finish up the language part, at the top of the hour. Then I want to bring John on because John has some amazingly important things to say, culminating with, we've got voices. We may not have to go through codes much longer. They may be trying to talk to us in real human speech. So let's move this conversation to where we can bring John on to give the backstory for that. David? Yeah, so there's a lot of languages that we need to look at. Sumerian is definitely among the oldest, and and Babylonian languages as well need to really be looked at because the Hebrew language is not really as old. It's nowhere near as old. Oh, no, no, no. Of course not. Nowhere near as old as Stonehenge. So we would have to look at one of the problems, and I studied this in, in looking for the origin of the English and the French language, is there were so many Celtic languages that were lost. In, in wars and when the Romans conquered the Celtic territories, the Celts were fighting amongst each other and they didn't even understand each other perfectly because their languages were not identical. And when people don't have 
understanding of each other due to a language barrier, they tend to fight more because they're frustrated and they don't really understand each other. So there wasn't one Celtic language. And so we, we, we could, again, you have to look for origin. That's why I started looking at origin of sounds, the, you know, the, the shape of a flute, the shape of a circle, the, the way wind moves over circular and curved surfaces, surfaces, and we start to see words forming and we start to see sharp sounds, your, your syllables and your consonant sounds mixed in with vowel sounds. And then you start to see, you know, how a religion even forms. And, and in the beginning, believe me, the Jews did not have a, an organized religion. It, it was it was in a radical state for a very long period of time. I've read really good history books on this. So there, even languages were not identical and easy to identify within the, with the within the same community there were disagreements about understanding of word so if what we're receiving through the what thomas's data is pulling in in the morse code is very ancient which it might be then we need people who really know a lot of words in Sumerian, and Zechariah Sitchin would have been the perfect person, but he's not alive anymore. So No, and I was thinking we, of reaching out to Stan Tennen, but I heard the other day that Stan may have passed and uh, I was not notified, so uh, he was no, not. he's still alive. Oh, he is? Good. I, yeah, I checked this out yesterday. Thank yeah. goodness, because I'm going to call him up tomorrow, and if, he's, and if his health is anywhere, you know, he's the perfect person to go to. For a whole bunch of reasons, um, so let me let me obviously I'll get back to everybody in the next couple of days and let you know whether he can you know play in the sandbox. Um, I, I want to lay out a kind of a, another dumb idea. Is it possible that we're looking at people, an AI, uh, a library, whatever, which is responding in a very McLuhan-esque fashion? In other words, instead of speaking to us in plain English because it doesn't really know I may not you know just thinking it may not know who's transmitting to, to whom it's 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 pointing us in the direction of ancient earthly cultures that use these metrologies and numbers and frequencies uh, that have appeared in the most recent, modern era, i.e. the last, let's say, 12,000 years, that in themselves may have encoded information from much older epics of human civilization, including high-tech, you know, Atlantean, Lemurian-type, you know, uh, paradigms, but they're, but, they're, but they're basically responding in terms of a cultural link to what we have sent them, not knowing that we're not of that era. Am I making myself kind of plain? But perhaps, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, and we've got 30 seconds till the break. So, tell you what, let's, let's everybody kind of take a pause. This is so amazing. I, I mean, this is absolutely phenomenally amazing that we're dealing with someone, some entity, some culture, some consciousness, some sentience whether it's organic, alien, family, extraterrestrial, meaning beyond even space and time, other dimensional stuff, 
or none of the above. The only thing we can be certain tonight, Sunday night, February 13th, 2022, is that we sent messages into the unknown, we've received answers, and the answers are multiplying and leading us to additional important questions, which we will try to answer in part when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall be right back. listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website the other side of midnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs> 